Father, we do cry with thankful tongues. Why? Why were we guests? None of us, Lord, should expect that we deserve your grace towards us. And it is because of your kindness that you've drawn each of us near. And so, Father, we are grateful for the salvation that you have extended to us, though we were not worthy of it, all because of your grace. We do pray, Lord, that you would constrain the nations to come, that you would constrain the earth to come, that you would save many, that you would fill your churches with people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who have had their sins forgiven because of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified as we study your word this morning, as we learn more about your family. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church family. It is a joy to worship with all of you this morning, uh, especially in light of our current circumstances. Um, Pastor Henry asked me to join him this month in the Essential Church series, and it is uh, my joy to be able to do so as I preach to you all on the family of God, the family of God. Now, granted, the church would not exist without the family of God. But if I may rock the boat just a little bit, wouldn't it be possible for God to establish the church but not establish us as family? Would it not be possible for God to establish the church but not make us a family? Absolutely. God could have established the church as simply an institution, a group of people dedicated to the same cause, but no other connection outside of that common cause. If the church was simply a group, simply a social club, we could still go around making a difference in the world, but we would also be missing out on depth of relationship with one another. God did not give us a social club. God did not give us a Facebook group about our favorite things in the world, about Korean instant pot recipes or, uh, or electric scooters or what have you. He didn't give us a Facebook group where we could share Christian memes and live out our, our Christianity just through the sharing of memes. He gave us a family. He gave us a family. And the family of God is a wonderful gift that God gives us, but it can be easy for us to disregard that family language and treat one another as strangers, though we say, hi, brother, hi, sister. And it can be very easy for us to view each other as just members of another club, like members of the PTA, like fans of the same sports team or any other kind of organization that rallies around a common cause dear to them for a short period of time when it's easy and convenient to do so. But, brothers and sisters, the family of God is more than just a group. And this morning, we will examine two responses to salvation from the text of Ephesians 2 
11 through 12, that remind us of the importance of the family of God. We're going to, there, there's a lot in this text. This is a very rich text. Honestly, this probably could take a few different sermons just to get through all of the different concepts that are in there. But as we go kind of through this, uh, this broad overview of Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, we're going to draw out some implications for, our, for us uh, as we try to see the importance of the family of God and why he's given us the family of God. And as you can see uh, on the slides, uh, or even in your bulletins, uh, the two points that we're going to be looking at, the two responses that we're going to be looking at this morning to salvation that remind us of the importance of the family of God is, well, one, we ought to remember our former status, and two, we ought to rejoice in our family status. Now, we're going to read the text of our sermon uh, in the message this morning, so let's pray one more time before we go into God's word. Father, we're grateful to you for the gift of the family that you've given us. And we pray, Lord, that though this might be a familiar topic to us, we pray that, Lord, you would impress upon us just the greatness of the salvation that you've shown to us. And we pray that you would be pleased, that you would be glorified as we rejoice in salvation and as we rejoice in you. Thank you, Father, for uh, this time. It's your sons and we pray. Amen. Well, the first response that we ought to have to, uh, to salvation that reminds us of the importance of the family of God is that we remember our former status. Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to Christians who lived in Ephesus and perhaps some of the neighboring churches as well. And Paul wanted to help the primarily non-Jewish Christians understand their place in God's purposes for the church and how they ought to live in light of the salvation that they've been given. Here in verses 11 and 12, we see Paul calling the Ephesians to remember their life before Christ. But notice, before he even begins to tell them what he wants them to remember, he tells them who they are. And that's kind of an odd feature to the text. If I were to address you and I said, good morning, San Francisco Bible Church, those of you who live in San Francisco and come to 401 Terraville on Sunday morning to worship Christ, like, you'd be like, why are you telling us these things? We know that we're a part of the church. We know that we meet here on the corner of 14th and, and Terraville. Why are you telling us the things that we already know about ourselves? It's kind of strange. But Paul has a point here. He wants specifically the Gentiles in the congregation to pay attention. He wants them to understand something. And you'll, you'll notice also, he doesn't just classify them as Gentiles. He could have just said Gentiles, and that would have been enough. They would have understood, yes, I am not Jewish. They would have understood that. But he calls them Gentiles in the flesh. And those who are Gentiles, they are normally thought of as you know, people who are not Jewish ethnically. So calling them Gentiles in the flesh is kind of redundant. It's not necessary. 
But Paul does so because he has a greater point. When Paul reminds them that they were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, he reminds them of the hostility that existed between them and the Jews. See, Gentiles, generally speaking, were very suspicious of the Jews because their behaviors, their beliefs, and their customs were often countercultural. At the same time, Jews generally despised Gentiles not only because of the pain that had been inflicted upon them for being different, but also because they often viewed themselves as superior to the Gentiles because they were the people of God. The idea is, well, we're the chosen people of God and you are not. Therefore, we are superior to you. And this emphasis that we see on circumcision and the lack of circumcision was particular evidence of that hostility. Circumcision was not common in those days and was often looked down upon by those in Gentile society. They didn't understand it. However, for the Jews, circumcision was an outward symbol that proved that they belonged to God, that they were a part of the covenant community, a symbol of promise that God had given to Abraham in Genesis 17. Now, because this symbol was so significant, so important for those of Jewish descent, you would expect that it would mean a lot more to Paul. But he says, you are called the circumcision by the so-called, sorry, the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. And why does he do that? Why does he kind of lower what it means to be circumcised? Well, it's because Paul understood, and he wanted the Gentiles to understand, that this outward symbol of being a part of God's family does not necessarily mean that you are a part of God's family. This is a work that is done by human hands. It's done in the flesh. Just like being ethnically a Gentile is something that is a fleshly reality. It doesn't indicate a true, uh, the, the, the true spiritual condition of a person. Today, if we saw someone wearing a cross necklace or a cross earring or a he greater than I uh, apparel, we might look at these people and think, oh, you must be a Christian because you're wearing the outward symbols of a Christian. But outward symbols do not necessarily indicate whether a person actually loves God. And many of the Jews who viewed themselves as superior to the Gentiles because of this outward symbol that showed that they were a part of God's family, they didn't realize that the outward symbol means nothing if you do not actually love God from the heart. And for this reason, Paul reminds the Gentiles that their love for God and their relationship with him is not seen primarily through physical signs. And as he moves on to verse 12, he goes back to what he was originally calling them to remember in verse 11. He wanted them to remember that there was a time in the past when they were not believers in Jesus Christ, when they were without Christ. Now, why would Paul do that? Because as we read in our call to worship this morning in, in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, he had, just, uh, he had just reminded them of the salvation that they've had, that they were dead in their transgressions and sins, and that they were saved 
not because of any work of their own, but by the grace of God that was given to them, the gift of God, the gift of faith through grace. He reminded them of that. So they already know that they've been saved by grace. They already know that they were at one point without Christ. So why does he do this again? Well, often, it's only when we remember the past, when we remember where we've come from, that we can actually appreciate where we are now. Right Right now, when we think about our lives, we tend only to look forward or just to look at what's in front of us. And it can be easy for us to forget, to be thankful for what we have now when we forget the past, when we forget what we've been saved from when we kind of assume that what we have right now is where we've always been. Right? That's not something that's always conscious. It's usually something that we unconsciously do. We just kind of forget our past. And so if these Gentile Christians were going to fully appreciate what God has done for them and live in light of those glorious truths, they cannot forget where they once were. And he draws that out even more as he shows them that not only were they without Christ, they were alienated from the citizenship of Israel, they were strangers to the covenant of promise, they had no hope, and they were without God in the world. And even within this list of five things that the Gentiles did not have, we could go in and look at how significant everything is. But to sum up Paul's point, were it not for the grace of God, were it not for his, his kindness to the Gentiles, the Gentiles would not even have a shred of hope for the forgiveness of their sins. Being alienated from the citizenship of Israel, you hear that and you're like, so what? We live in America. USA forever, baby. Right? But America is not the best. America is not, is, you know, having citizenship in America is not better than, than necessarily having a relationship with God and his, and his people. And this is what his point is, right? Alienated from the citizenship of Israel, it's not like, oh, well, I, I, should, be, I, should, I should aspire to, to, Isra- to, um, to um, Israeli citizenship. That's not what Paul's saying, but he's saying that without a proper relationship with or, or th- through God's chosen people, we would not have received any of the grace that we have, right? Because God's salvation plan came through the nation of Israel. But the Gentiles, because they were alienated from, the, from Israel, they, at that time, had no claim to any of the blessings that the Lord would give. When God said that he would bless the families of the earth through Abraham and his descendants, the ultimate form of that blessing was through salvation in his son, Jesus. And since the Gentiles were previously without Christ, they were alienated from Israel, all that they deserved was the wrath of God against sin. That's all that they deserved. They had no rights whatsoever to any claim to Jesus Christ. Any claim of blessing, none of that was theirs. None of that was rightfully theirs. And we know, we know from Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who was allowed an exemption from God when it comes to his wrath against sin. 
No one was righteous on their own. Not even one person was righteous apart from God graciously granting forgiveness of sin to those who believe. This is where we all were before Christ. Outside of the promise. Outside of hope of forgiveness. Verses 13 through 18. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father." So you see, Paul doesn't just tell people where they once were, how deeply in trouble they were with God, and then just leave them there. He, tell, he, he reminds them of the hope that they have, the hope that was made available to them because of Christ's death and resurrection. You see, in order to maximize our appreciation for the salvation that we've been given, we cannot forget how truly amazing salvation is. And since Paul had just talked about the separation that the Jews had from the Gentiles, he begins by showing them how Christ's death on the cross repaired their relationship with God's chosen people. Now, to be clear, Christ's death does not mean that all Gentiles have a good relationship with all Jews. Rather, Christ's death allows for all Christian Gentiles and all Christian Jews to have a restored relationship. The barriers that once separated them, not only socially, but also in terms of access to salvation, were broken down by Christ's death on the cross for all who would believe. You see, salvation was never meant to be exclusively for God's chosen people of Israel. It came through them first, but it was always meant to go out to the nations. And in the Old Testament, God signals to his people that he cares for the nations, that it's not just all about Israel, but it is, in fact, about every single person who has been made in the image of God. And in Christ, the true hope of salvation for all of mankind is available for all who will believe in Jesus Christ, repent of their sins, and follow after Christ. Through Christ, the two groups who were once diametrically opposed foes have true peace. No one gets the short end of the stick. No one comes out on top. No compromise is necessary. Why? Because Christ made peace between the two groups so that instead of retaining our distinctions, we've become a new creation. We are a new humanity in him. Peace between 
men is made possible because of Christ's death. But ultimately, we also see a greater peace that was made possible through Christ's death. Peace between those who believe in Jesus Christ and God himself. God the Father. You see, since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all of mankind deserves God's wrath against sin. But, as we see here, Christ put to death the enmity. Not just between mankind, but also the enmity that was between us and God. He put to death the wrath and separation that we have earned for ourselves in his own body so that both Jew and Gentile might be brought near to God and have access to him through the Holy Spirit. Now, how does remembering our former status remind us of the importance of the family of God today? Well, first, it reminds us that our salvation was all a part of God's salvation plan for mankind. Our salvation is a part of God's salvation plan for all of mankind. He intentionally brought people from Israel and from Gentile nations to be a part of a new humanity that is made to represent God in this world and to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. When God brings us together as a church, when he brings Christians together as the church universal, it's not so that we can do whatever we please. It's not so that we can simply be a part of a group. It's not so that we can just make a bunch of friends who are nice and who go do good things for for, for other people who are in need. We are here together as a family, to glorify God. We are all a small part of a bigger plan that God has to save people from their sins. When we remember that we bring nothing to the table, that God is the one who graciously chooses us to be a part of his salvation plan, that reminds us that, well, not only can we not take for granted our own salvation, but we also must not take for granted the family that God has given us as well. Secondly, remembering our former status ought to remind us to strive to be humble in how we deal with one another, especially when we may disagree with one another or have differences of opinions. You see, if Christ died on the cross for our sins to bring us together, to make us a new humanity, right? this new family that we have it's not insignificant. Right? We are meant to glorify God in everything that we do. And that includes in how we handle conflict and how we handle disagreements. We have to remember that as a part of God's bigger salvation plan, that the way that we interact with one another is important because we represent Christ to each other and to the watching world. We may not blatantly treat people in the church as if they are second-class citizens or as, uh, or, or as if they're outcasts when we disagree with them. But there are times, though, when we do sin against each other, whether you know, on purpose or inadvertently. But as we do so, as we sin against each other, we inadvertently form these dividing walls among the family of God. Let me get into your kitchen and make a little bit of a mess. Take, for example the issue of COVID vaccinations. 
while most of us would never say something directly to someone who has a differing opinion than we do, do we make nasty comments about those who don't share our opinions in public spaces? And it doesn't necessarily have to be out loud at church. Are you that person on the comment threads and newspaper articles or Facebook groups or whatever who is making nasty comments about others who do not share your opinions? Pro-vaxxers, are you guilty of calling people who are hesitant to take the vaccine selfish, stupid, anti-science? Anti-vaxxers, are you guilty of calling people who take the vaccine stupid, lemmings, or other nasty words? And you see, even if this issue was not on, or even if the issue was not on something that was such a hot topic as vaccinations, the members of our church family have all been brought near to God through the death and resurrection of Christ. He died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and make us one. Why would we choose to allow for our sin, whether it's inwardly or against other people, be the thing that breaks up and causes division the family of God? Do we really have that little of a heart for God's family? Do we really not care about the family members that he has purchased and brought together for us. You see, together we've been made one, we've been made one new humanity. And that's in Christ. And what we are supposed to be doing, brothers and sisters, is we're supposed to all be in the process of becoming more like him. Not continuing on as we were. We're supposed to be more like him. And as such, since we all belong to him, since we all represent him, we need to be careful in how we treat one another. We have to be careful of assuming heart motives and rushing to judgment against other people for things where maybe we don't have all the, all the information. Now granted, we will have disputes in the church. We will have moments where we will strongly disagree with one another, where our where our expectations will go unmet. When we will, unfortunately, sin against each other. There are all sorts of opportunities for us to break the true peace and unity that Christ has won for us over the most trivial things. There are churches out there that break up because they can't decide whether they have individual chairs in the rows in the sanctuary or pews. Like, who cares? Why does it matter what you sit on? Just because it's a bench doesn't mean that it's more holy. Right? Or they, they get mad at each other because of the color of the carpet. Or because of the lack of parking spaces in the parking lot. We have, all sorts of, we have evidence of all sorts of reasons why churches have broken unity. And they're all trivial. It's all about one person desiring one thing above the other. Above other people. Right? They're, and, and in their sin, they lash out against one another. That's not how the body of Christ ought to act. That's not how the family of Christ ought to act. 
when we remember where we came from and what Christ has done to unify us in himself and make us a new creation, we ought to strive to act differently from the world when it comes to our disputes and our disagreements. When people look at how we handle our conflicts, they should be amazed by our commitment to love one another as we work out our issues in a loving and respectful way. And why do we do that? It's not because we just want to be nice. It's due to the common bonds that we have in Christ. They shouldn't look at us and see themselves in how we respond to trouble. They shouldn't be like, I would respond in the exact same way. That shouldn't be the way that we act. It should be different because of Christ. They should see Christ in us, and hopefully that will lead them to ask why we are approaching things so differently. Now, much more can be said here, but for the sake of time, we must move on to the second response that we ought to have to salvation that reminds us of the importance of the family of God, and that is the response of rejoicing in our family status. We ought to rejoice in our family status. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So what we've been hinting at previously in our last point is now made explicit here when we see that a result of being unified with others in Christ is the blessing of being included in the people of God, the household of God. But before we get to that, we see these words, we're no longer... We're no longer strangers and sojourners. What does he mean by that? Well, these words, they're pretty interchangeable, but they do have their nuances. And one commenter illustrated it this way. The, the stranger is like a tourist traveling in a foreign country, just passing through. Right? I'm on vacation. The sojourner is someone who is living in another country on a residence visa. They have their citizens somewhere else, citizenship somewhere else, but they have a visa to live in another country for now. Now, because we have been brought near to God through the death and resurrection of Christ, we do not remain far off. We've been given citizenship status along with everyone else who belongs to the family of God, the kingdom of God. And because of that, our privileges are the same. In fact, our privileges are even greater than being just a citizen, our privileges are familial. They're family privileges because we are a part of God's household. In ancient times, being a part of someone's household does not necessarily mean that they were considered a true part of the family. Um, Those who were included in the household were any of the slaves who lived in the house. And these slaves, they were given some privileges. They had provisions of food, clothing, shelter, and protection, but they didn't have the same rights as those who were a part of the family. Now, the word that Paul uses here to describe being a part of God's household is not the word that could include the household slaves, but a specific word that refers to those who are of close family relationship. They're of kin. Now, why is that significant? It's because God did not just save Gentiles so that we could be subservient to his chosen people of Israel. He saved Gentiles and gave us the same status as believing Jews. We are both co-heirs with Christ. We are both equal recipients of God's grace. You see, it would have been enough 
It would have been enough for God to simply just let us in the house. That that Samaritan woman, she recognized that. Actually, sorry, she's not Samaritan. But that that woman, that that Gentile woman recognized that when she was talking to Jesus, she was asking Jesus to heal her child. And and as a a test of her faith, he asked her, why should I do that? And her response was, well, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs off the ta- from, that fell off the table from the, from the children. It would have been enough for God to simply just let us into the house, to allow for us just to have the crumbs that fell off the children's table, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He instead makes us a part of his household. He adopts us as his sons and daughters. He treats us exactly the same as he would his family. And that is a cause of great rejoicing for Christians because that provides us with the confidence that our status will never be revoked. It will never be lost. It doesn't matter how much you sin. It doesn't matter if you struggle with your assurance of salvation. It doesn't matter if you temporarily find yourself enslaved by sin. You will never lose your family status. God will not cast you out if you are truly his. Because he has forever brought us near. Though we may be unfaithful, he will never be faithful. He will will never be unfaithful to us. He's faithful to his promises. God has forever brought us near to himself. Verses 20 to 22. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being joined together, is grown into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So we know that our salvation status in Christ is secure because what Paul does here is he abruptly switches metaphors. And he talks about the family of God not as just family, but he talks about the family of God in terms of an of a actual house, right? He switches into an architectural um, metaphor. And it's a different kind of family, a different kind of house, I guess. And the apostles and the New Testament prophets of that day, they're responsible for helping Christians understand God's word. They were that foundation that the rest of the church is being built upon. And they do so Namely, by helping us understand more about Christ and how the church ought to live in response to the gospel. And in that sense, they are those foundation stones upon which the rest of the house is being built. Now, though the apostles and the prophets are the foundation upon which the house is built, uh, upon which the temple is being built, Christ himself is the cornerstone, as we see in verse 20. In ancient buildings, the cornerstone was one of the most important stones in a structure. It was the first stone laid down. It was a guide stone, if you will, the beginning point of the entire foundation. All of the other stones that were laid down in the building needed to be correctly aligned with it in order for the structure to be sound. If you chose unwisely and you chose a cornerstone that was not good, that was not solid, that was not straight, that was not... Uh, sound, the rest of the structure would be doomed. In today's buildings, fitting stones together in the buildings that we construct, it's not as difficult. 
because we have things like mortar to help us even out some of the irregularities. We have rebar that helps, uh, that helps strengthen things that are, are a little weak. But before mortar was used, ancient masons had to use an elaborate process of cutting and smoothing the stones out so that they fit exactly next to each other. If you want to think about it this way, they had to make sure that their, that their blocks were perfect so that the structure would stand. It's like Legos, right? That everything fits together well. But even though they had to go through that elaborate process, having a choice stone as the cornerstone of the building was incredibly important because it set the tone for the rest of the foundation. Now with Christ as our cornerstone, we know that the building, the temple that God is building as people continue to hear the gospel, repent of their sins, and place their faith in Christ will be secure because there is no other one that we would rather put our hope in. He is solid. He is firm. And not only will this building be secure, but as we see in verse 21, God is also joining the rest of the stones together as people are getting saved. The fact that the building is still growing, right? You see here, it says that it is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. It's significant because that reminds us of the fact that God's not done yet. God's not done yet in terms of building his temple. He's not done yet building his family, growing his family. God is still in the process of saving sinners through Jesus Christ. He's still in the process of adopting people into his family and growing his church. He's not done yet. And that means that we're not done yet. As a church, we can't just focus in on ourselves But we have to remember that as a family, yes, we do take care of one another. Yes, we do strive to equip one another to be strong in the faith. But we also do so so that we can go minister to other people. So that we can go out to our community and we can proclaim Christ to them. So that we can go to the members of our family who are not saved or who may think that they're saved but are not saved. And we might bring to them the gospel so that they too might hear the gospel. And Lord willing, respond with saving faith so that they can be adopted into the family of God, so that they can be a part of this growing holy sanctuary in the Lord. Now, verse 21 talks about the building process. But verse 22 talks about the people who make up the building. You see, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God that is... Jew and Gentile, right? Believing Jew and Gentile together are being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Each person being saved by God is a part of the building that God is constructing. Now, returning to that picture of the masons who were very careful in selecting, cutting, and smoothing out the stones that they would use to put a building together, isn't it encouraging that God himself is the one who is doing that with us. That God, as he is building us together into a, dwelling of, uh, into a dwelling of him in the spirit, he has purposely chosen each and every one of us who has believed in him. He's not doing so haphazardly. He's not like, oh, I, I had no idea that you were going to believe in my gospel uh, let's see, where should I put you? I don't really have a good place to put you. Maybe I'll put you over here in this part of the building. That's not how God operates. 
He has purposely chosen every single one of you who believe to be a part of his family. And that means that each and every one of us has an integral part to play in the body. It's not a throwaway thing that we're a part of the family of God. This is significant. This is amazing that God would choose to purposely choose us to be a part of his people, a part of his dwelling place. Not only has he specifically and intentionally chosen us, but he has also securely set us in place where we belong within the family of God too. And that should be an extreme comfort, especially for those of you who doubt. Now, how should we respond to the truth that we are a part of God's family and therefore are an integral part of the church that God is building? Well, as our major points reminded us, that we ought to rejoice. And there are two reasons why we ought to rejoice. This is mostly in review, but first we rejoice because God, in his kindness, just didn't let us into the house. We aren't just the household slaves of Roman times. He adopted us into his family, though we were once his enemies. The love that he has extended to us, though we wanted nothing to do with him, is truly amazing. And not amazing in the sense of the watered-down sense of amazing that we have today, right? being amazed at an improbable sports play or amazed that the screenwriters pulled off a superhero team-up that we had never thought we would ever see on screen. Right? Amazing in the sense that this is truly astounding. That it is truly worthy of all adoration. And it's amazing because God is beyond anything that we could ever understand or comprehend And the second reason why we ought to rejoice is because of the sureness of the salvation that we've been given. As a part of God's holy sanctuary, God has providentially put us into place just as he has done with the generations of Christians who have come before us. And knowing that he has specifically chosen to save us from before time began and intentionally including us in his family. And his temple provides us with great comfort, knowing that he chose to set his love on us, not because of anything that we would do or because we were worth it, but because he chose to do it. Because of his own loving kindness, he set his love on us. And that family that we've been given in Christ, it's not merely a symbol or something that we say to artificially bond ourselves together. Right? You think about uh, corporations out there, sports teams out there that say that we're family. Right? The NFL says football is family. And we talk about the companies that we might work for. Oh, you work for the Costco family. Or you're a part of the Costco family. Or you're a part of uh, you're a part of the San Francisco family. We're going to take care of you because you're a part of the San Francisco family. Right? Do they really mean that? Do they really think that we're actually family? Sometimes they do. Right? But the sense of family that they're trying to give us is not a real sense of family. Right? It's a warm, fuzzy feeling so you don't leave. Or so that you have a positive, uh, uh, positive uh, uh, thought about them so that hopefully you might stay. Hopefully you might be loyal. 
And why do you think they give you loyalty points at some of these boba places, right? We're a part of our family. Here's, here's our celebration for your birthday. You, you pay us just a little less money than you normally would for our privilege. Like, what? It's not a blessing. So this is not a throwaway term when we say that we're family. Jesus himself changed reality. Jesus changed reality to bring us to himself so that we can be one with him and a part of his household. Before, we deserve nothing except for wrath. But he changed reality so that we could be his family. So that we can actually call each other brothers and sisters and mean it. And not in the sense that the world means it when they say, oh, hey, what's up, brother? Or hey, what's up, sister? Right? But no, we are actually family. And this familial bond that we are blessed to enjoy, it's real. Because Christ changed reality. It's real. And it's a wonderful gift that he's given us as we all play a part in his larger salvation plan. So as a result, when we rejoice in this family status that we've been given, another implication for us to consider is if we're family, we ought to make time for one another. We ought to have intentional time with one another. We ought to cherish the time that we have with one another. You know, you, I'm glad that you guys are here um, worshiping with us on, on a Sunday, but honestly... You know, if, if our idea of family time is I'm going to show up, maybe for Sunday school if I wake up on time, and I'm going to go to service, and that's enough family time for me, what's on the TV, or I got to hurry up and go to Safeway before, you know, it gets crowded and all the good groceries are gone, or, uh, you know, I got to make sure I start my meal prep so that uh, I have enough time to cook, clean, and, and then uh, hopefully rest and, and relax uh, before, uh, before I have to go to bed and get, go to work tomorrow. If that's all we see church as, is just a stepping stone to the rest of the things that we have to do, that's not really exactly cherishing family time, right? It's I'm in, I'm out, I go about my life. When we want to have family time, we want to enjoy the time that we have together. We want to be able to together encourage one another to worship our Lord to really value the people that God has placed among us. Not just to simply know enough about someone where you can say like, hi, first name, person, and then you move on with your day. We want to be able to know people. We want to make sure that we build those family bonds that we have. Now, um, that being said, every conversation that we have doesn't always have to be super in-depth it doesn't always have to be a super intentional. We can have casual conversations too. Right? It's okay for you to talk about your hobbies. Right? It doesn't always have to be about what is God teaching uh, you lately and uh, what, has, what has he been teaching you lately or, or how can I be praying for you? It doesn't ha- always have to be those things, although those things are really nice. Right? When this happened, those things are really nice. Um, and you know, we, we want to be able to we do want to be able to have some of those times, though, where we, can, where we can freely share what's going on in our lives to others because those are, that's, a, that's a crucial way 
that those familial bonds that we have with one another uh, is built. If you don't have a sense of family within the church, isn't it easy for you to think, well, you know what? I don't really like the music at this church. The fellowship groups are all right. Uh, Preaching's just, meh. I can get that from YouTube. Uh, Why should I stay? Oh, they have programs that I like, though. Or maybe I should stay for the programs. Ah, well, I can find this, this program at another church. All right, why, would, why would you stay? Or why would you stay if you don't have familial bonds? That's why the, the, the family of God is so important. Everything that we have at the church, if we just look at it in terms of program, can be replicated anywhere else, except for the common bond, the common fellowship that we have in Christ together, right? Walking together, living together, practicing the one another's with one another. Those are the things that make Christianity different. And that's why we say that that being together as the family of God is irreplaceable. That's why when many of you have returned to in-person worship, you've noted this is different. That online church wasn't exactly the same. Why? Because that's how the family of God moves together. That's how we grow together. That's how we push each other to grow more in Christ's likeness. We should all strive to build intentional friendships with people at church so that we can walk together through the Christian life. And you know what? You don't have to tell everything to everyone. If you think that that means, you know, if you think building intentional familial bonds with people means that you have to pour out every aspect of your life to everybody in the church, that's not necessarily the case. But you should have people that you are walking with who do know what's going on in your life so that you can encourage one another and push each other to greater Christ likeness. That's what we do as family. It's important that the family of God is connected to one another because this is how we grow. This is how we show the world that the church is different. If the church wasn't different from any other organization, why do we go to church? Why do we wake up on a Sunday morning? Why can't we make a difference in the world by volunteering at the local homeless shelter and just doing that? Why can't we, just through the power of self-help books, improve ourselves to be the best version of us so that we can live our best life now. Or why do we need the church? If that's all we were. We're more than that. We're more than that. We show people that the gospel isn't just something that a bunch of deluded religious fanatics believe as they're just hoping for something better to distract them from what they see in the world. Or the church shows people that the gospel that we say we believe actually has power. Power to change reality. Power to change the facts on the ground. Power to save sinners from their sins. And by the way, side note, that's why when we say that we believe in the gospel and that we've been changed by God's grace, we have no excuse not to grow in Christ-likeness. God doesn't save you so that you can continue to be you. He is in the process of making all of us more into the image of his son. And so for those of you who might say, I can't help it, it's my personality. You're just going to have to love me as I am. That's not what God wants for you. He wants more than that for you. He wants for you to be 
like his son because that's the best thing for you. Right? So don't make excuses because of your personality. Don't make excuses because this is how you're built. God has created us to be more like his son. And so we can grow. We can change. We can glorify him in every aspect of our lives. And that's why it's so important for us as the family of God to be together because we show people that the gospel isn't just a bunch of connected stories that makes you feel good. It actually has power to change lives. And for this reason, Hebrews 10 23 to 25 says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This morning, we continued our essential church series by looking at the importance of the family of God. And as we thought about the family of God, we, were, uh, we observed two responses to salvation that reminds us of the importance of the family of God. Remembering how our former status has changed through Jesus Christ helps us remember that being a part of God's family is a privilege. It helps us remember that we are a part of God's salvation plan for all of mankind. And because we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, it reminds us that we are to be mindful of how we treat others within the family of God. Rejoicing in our family status encourages us not to take being a part of God's family for granted. It reminds us that we all have a function within the family, that we all have a role to play in God's greater salvation plan. And as a result, we should cherish the time that we have, cherish the relationships that we have within the body and strive to glorify God in those relationships by caring for one another and valuing the time that we have with one another, knowing that it is together as a church family that we will accomplish God's plans in his world, in his kingdom, to bring more people into his family. So then, brothers and sisters, let us strive to act like the Christians that God has saved us to be, to act like the family that he has saved us to be a part of, so that we may glorify our Father who saved us and loved us and do the good works that he has prepared for us to do beforehand. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the salvation that you've given We're grateful for the fact that you adopt us into your family, though we were once sinners. We're grateful for the fact that you changed reality so that we can be your sons and daughters rather than your enemies who deserve your wrath. We're grateful for your loving kindness towards us. We pray that you would be honored as we continue to reflect upon the truths that we've just heard and the truths that we're about to sing. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.